Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The word of the Lord. We are hardwired to connect. If you go back to the earliest philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they created a hierarchy of what life was about or meant to be about, and it included things like sensuality was down here, next up was power and influence, but above that was family. Above family was friendship. But both Plato and Aristotle said this, true fulfillment is found in contemplating that which is higher than ourselves. It's the pursuit of knowing God that we're really made to pursue. A more recent poet and philosopher, Bono, wrote about 30 years ago, I have climbed highest mountains. I've run through the fields only to be with you. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You too sings about that desire to find something, God, and looking everywhere to find it. And a more recent study by the Dartmouth Medical uh, Dartmouth Medical School, did a study on at-risk children in 2003. What they were trying to figure out is what makes a child at risk for depression, addiction, and even suicidal thoughts. And the Dartmouth Medical School study concluded that what is the problem with at-risk children is that they do not have relationships with others or with God. That we are biologically wired biologically wired for relationships, and that kids that grow up with meaningful relationships with adults around them have a grounding. And we're also biologically wired from early age to find moral meaning 
and transcendent reality. One quote in there stood out to me. It said, our capacity and desire for spiritual experience are to some degree hardwired. We are made to connect with one another and with God. If this is true biologically, why is it so hard to do? Well, the Bible suggests it goes back to the beginning, right? Back to the beginning of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There, Adam and Eve are in the garden in Genesis 2, in complete relational harmony with one another and with God. And God says to them, you may eat of any tree in here, even the tree of eternal life, but of the tree of knowledge you may not eat or you will die. And basically, it was a, it was a question to them, would they trust God or would they seek to be their own God? And of course, you know the story. Adam and Eve sin. They eat of the tree that they're called not to eat. They choose to be their own gods. And what happens is alienation. Adam is alienated from Eve. Both of them are alienated from creation. And all of humanity is alienated from God. And it carries on in one of the darkest scenes in the Bible that often we overlook the expulsion from the Garden of Eden the place that they were made for, harmony, relationship with creation, with one another, with God. And we read in verse 23 and 24 of Genesis 3, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, I remember thinking as a younger kid growing up in the church, well, Adam and Eve were told if they ate the, the tree, they would die, but they didn't die. And the indication is that there's something greater than even physical death. No, they didn't die physically right when they ate, but as can be seen in the alienation they experienced in expulsion from the garden, they died spiritually and eternally that day. And every human who has ever followed stands in that same place spiritually and eternally dead because we are separated from God, the very source of life. We are created to be connected to God, but now we live by nature apart from God. And many of us feel this. We feel this on a daily basis. You know when you sin, when you do something you know is wrong and then you feel guilty about it, you actually feel a separation from God. Or when we're dealing with trials and suffering, and God just feels very, very far. Or even the wrestling that many of us have with faith and doubt, that intellectual challenge, does God actually exist? We are by nature people who feel far from God. So how do we connect? Well, if you look at people today, the modern approach follows a couple of different directions. The modern approach to connecting to God is ignore God. That's at least one direction to go. Pretend like God doesn't exist. Go in another direction altogether. But ultimately, this is what you find. If you talk to anybody who doesn't actually believe in God, they've actually put their hope in something. Their ultimate hope is in their career, or their family, or their stuff, or in experiences, or in pleasure. Their hope is in something. A couple of years ago, David Kinneman, the head of the Barna Research Group, put out a book called Unchristian. He was tabulating where millennials and Gen Xers are in relation to faith and the church. And what Kinneman came up with was millennials in particular 
have rejected Christianity and have in its place turned to friendships and experiences. They're extremely loyal to their friends and they're seeking experience and experiences. And in these things, they're finding heaven, their own version of nirvana and salvation. More recently, in fact, yesterday, the Washington Post had an article in the religion section talking about how we have actually personalized faith. That's another approach to God. Rather than ignoring God altogether, it's, well, I sort of believe in God, but it's completely individualistic. And the result is that people have detached themselves from organized religion, like a church, but they have some version of praying to God. They have completely individualized faith. Father James Martin, a Jesuit priest who was Um, who had a quote or two in there, said this. He said, there's a problem with that, though, and it's this. If it's just me and God, anything I do can be seen as divinely ordained. What ultimately happens when you have a personalized faith is you actually confuse the living God with your own thoughts. And whatever you think, it must be from God. Whether we personalize our faith and make it very individualistic, or we ignore God altogether, what ends up happening is we have atrophied spirituality. You see, most of us realize today that we are physical beings and we are intellectual and emotional beings, but the Bible makes it clear we're also spiritual beings. It's what makes sense of why we hate death, why we're longing for eternity, or why even things like love can't be categorized purely in scientific terms. There's something spiritual about us, made in the image of God, made to connect to God, made for eternity. And when you don't exercise it in the way that God calls us to, it's like a muscle that's never used. It becomes limp and atrophied. Your spiritual side is underdeveloped. And it's underdeveloped because we are disconnected from God. So we can ignore God or we can personalize our religion or we can actually turn to organized religion. And that's what societies have done for centuries, right? Pretty much throughout history, every society has organized itself religiously. And you might say it's the collection of their shared moral values passed on through traditions that create all of our major religions. And it's a sense that we as a people need to figure out a way to understand the world around us, why we're here, where it's all going, what's right and wrong. Most of Americans today, even if we are religious, have pushed against that sense. But we can also confuse what God offers us in Jesus with simply being religious. This idea that church involvement or being good are all that matter. And you know, over the course of your life, what you can find is, well, you know, I I went to church three out of four Sundays, and I even took my kids to RE on Mondays, and I gave some money to the church, and I sat on a couple of boards, and over the course of 20 years, you feel pretty religious. You look very active. And today, what we would say is, if somebody is religious and they're earnest about it, they're devout, and they're kind, generally kind to people, that's good enough. Jesus claims in our passage today with his actions that even that doesn't work. Ignoring God, individualized faith, or religious activity are not enough. In fact, Jesus makes pretty much everyone angry in our passage today. In Mark 11, Jesus challenges the entire nation of Israel and their attempt to connect to God. His actions riding into Jerusalem overturning money changers and cursing a fig tree 
are a judgment on the whole religious system of first century Judaism. He's saying that the faithfulness of Israelites as faithful Jews is no more than a leafy tree without fruit. It is tables that need to be overturned. He's saying that neither religion, even when earnest, nor being really, really good and keeping all the laws gets man to God. Only he does. So in a very long intro, let's now jump into the passage and look at what Jesus actually does in our passage today, what he claims, and what it means to us. So what Jesus does is he does a lot of action in our passage today. Most of the time we think of Jesus' sermons or Jesus' healings. What he does today in our passage in Mark 11 is a lot of dramatic actions. And it's actually what in theological terms is called an acted parable or enacted prophecy. So it's highly symbolic actions with a lot of meaning behind it. As an example, you might point to something in our own history more recently, like in 1955 when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. That was a dramatic action, speaking prophetically against segregation south in America, saying this is wrong. And for years, we've looked back on that as a turning point, a tipping point. She didn't preach a sermon, she sat there. And that action said more than words. More recently, on June 5th, 1989, in an uprising in Tiananmen Square, the Chinese government began its crackdown, and they brought the military on the protesters in Tiananmen Square. And there's that famous picture of that one young man running out, white shirt, carrying a bag, and standing in front of a row of tanks and refusing to move. A protest against the military might crushing, crushing their civil disobedience. Sometimes actions speak louder than words. And sometimes these things are called prophecy and parables that are being enacted. Ezekiel the prophet was told in the Old Testament to lie on his side around a little stone tablet that had an inscription of, it, of Jerusalem on it. And he was supposed to lie on his side for an entire year around this stone tablet to portray that one day very soon Israel was going to be surrounded and put under siege if they did not repent. Isaiah the prophet had it far worse than lying on his side for an entire year. He went around and preached naked for three years. For three years, he preached completely in the buff, which was a completely shameful thing in that day and age as it would be today, but even worse back then. And it was meant to be an acted prophecy that the opponents of God, the nations that oppose God, would be driven out in shame and dishonor like him. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, when he curses a fig tree, when he overturns money changers, we should be looking for the same sort of thing, and it's exactly what we get. He rides into Jerusalem. The very next day, he and the disciples are, are going in, and they see a fig tree. This is in verses 13 and 14. Jesus and his disciples are heading into Jerusalem, and he sees a fig tree, and it says Jesus was hungry. He sees the tree. It's got leaves all over it. He walks up to it, and there's no fruit on the tree. Well, there's no fruit because it's not fruit season. Well, there's a couple of explanations there. Is either Jesus knew it was not fruit season, and he was using it completely as an example, or 
As many commentators suggest, it should have had fruit buds on it, fruit buds that you could actually eat, little nubs of the fruit that was going to be grown, that you could actually eat on your way. This tree had leaves but no fruit, indicating it was dead. It was diseased. Jesus pronounces a curse on the tree, which seems odd. The next day, the tree is completely withered. But you have to understand, this is not just Jesus being vindictive on a poor little tree. You see, a fig tree several times in the Old Testament was symbolic of the entire nation of Israel and the religious leaders in particular. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the whole religious system of Israel. He's saying all of their religious activity is leaves without fruit. It is spiritually dead and disconnected from God, even though it looks very religious and devout. He then enters into Jerusalem, and where does he go? He goes to the temple courts, and he goes specifically to the court of the Gentiles. So he's moved from being just with his disciples to now the most crowded place in all of Jerusalem during Passover week. Tens of thousands of people are swarming the streets, and this is the court of the Gentiles, which was a five football field-sized area on the outside of the temple building. The intention of the court of the Gentiles was it was the place where Gentiles could go. So you were a non-Jew but believed in Yahweh God. You could go there and pray, be somewhat near to God. But by the first century, Gentiles couldn't even enter their own courtyard because it had become a stockyard, a stockyard where you bought and sold animals. Jesus goes in And he begins driving out. He drove out the money changers. He overturns the tables, drives out those who were buying and selling and would not allow anyone to carry anything in there. And then he pronounces this declaration, this judgment, this declaration. He says, this is meant to be called a house of prayer for all nations and you have turned it into a den of robbers. Now, most often we get hung up on that robbers and he's overturning money changers and we think Jesus is pronouncing judgment on some sort of economic activity. Now, there's probably some truth in that, but that word robber is actually the same word that's used of the men crucified on either side of Jesus. And it was actually the same title that was, in a sense, given to him. It meant a criminal of the state, a rebel. You were condemned for being one of these people, executed for this sort of thing. He's pronouncing a judgment on the whole system. You see, for a few moments, he temporarily halts the temple activity, and it's not that he's against buying and selling. In fact, it was actually important and necessary. If you came from farther away, you did not carry your sheep with you from 100 miles away. Instead, you brought money. When you got to Jerusalem, you would buy a sheep, a lamb, to be sacrificed on the Passover. According to one historian, Josephus, in 66 AD, over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered during Passover week. You couldn't carry 250,000 lambs for miles away. They were already there to be bought, sold, and sacrificed. It was a necessary part of it. Rather, what Jesus is doing, instead of bringing his judgment on money selling in the temple, is to bring judgment on the whole system. He's overturning the whole system, halting the whole system, saying, 
A religious system built on sacrifices is completely lifeless and fruitless. In order to understand that, we need to understand the role of the temple in first century Israel. The temple was seen as the unique dwelling place of God. We've talked about that in this place here before, is how in, in the Bible, this idea of where God dwells is a very important continuum throughout Scripture. First, you have God dwelling with man and woman in the Garden of Eden. He's with them face to face. But when they are expelled, God becomes distant and only occasionally shows up for Noah or Abraham or Isaac. But then in the history of Israel, when they come out as the people of God, out of the Exodus, they set up a tabernacle, a large tent, which was where God dwelt with them. And he said, where this tabernacle is, is where I will be. I will be with you and you will be my people and I will be your God. And when they came into the land of Israel, they built a temple, a permanent tabernacle, a permanent dwelling place of God. And the belief was that God dwelt physically there. If you wanted to see and experience God, you went to the temple. And that's where worship of God was taking place. And around that whole thing was a sacrificial system, which said the only way we can approach God is with fear and trepidation. And this comes out of Genesis. You see, God is a holy God, and we are sinful people. And they even called the place where God supposedly dwelled the holy of holies. You didn't enter there or you would die. The only way to come near to the holy place of God, the temple, was with a sacrifice. And that's because, as every Israelite knew, the wage of sin was death. If you eat of the tree, you will die. You try to go back near the source of life and there are swords guarding the way. And so they brought sacrifices year in and year out, animal sacrifices. The aim, of course, was to connect with God. But Jesus is saying this whole system is insufficient. Jesus' actions in the temple overturning the money changers is incredibly incendiary and provocative. It's actually what many scholars think is the very reason he was executed. He was saying, everything you are doing, everything you are devoutly doing in coming up to the temple and worshiping God in this way is insufficient and needs to be overturned. In fact, by his words that follow in the chapters after Mark 11, what Jesus is claiming is, I, I am the very presence of God with you. I am the true sacrifice that allows you to enter near to God. And unless you recognize me, Jesus, as the Messiah and the true temple, you will never find God. But this is also the good news of the gospel. What starts off in ju as judgment in chapter 11 ends in Mark 16 as the gospel, the good news that we have access to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus tears down the dividing wall that keeps a holy God from sinful people. He is the sacrifice that gains us entrance to God's presence. You know, the dark day when man and woman were cast out of Eden, east of Eden, they were pushed east of Eden, humanity is expelled from God's presence, pushed away from access to the tree of life. Well, by the end of this week, 
Jesus week in Mark, Jesus is pushed outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is hung on a cross, expelled from the Father's presence. As he's dying there, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you expelled me from your presence, O Father? And of course, he was expelled from God's presence for our sin. The sword that guards the tree of life came down on him so that we can have access to life eternal. The good news of Jesus is that we can actually have a relationship with God through Jesus. Not through religious devotion or being really good or nice. Jesus is claiming it's through faith in him. And you know what happens when you have faith in Jesus Christ? The Bible says the next move is that God takes up residence in us. We move from face to face with God in Eden to trying to figure out where God is, to finding him in a temple and tabernacle, to seeing him in the person of Jesus hung on a cross. To those of us who believe that he died and rose again, God now says, I will take up residence in you. You and I, the Bible says, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God resides in everyone who believes. You don't have to go searching for him anymore. If your faith is in Jesus, he's there. The very presence of God is now with anyone who believes. That means we're incredibly near to God. It's not hard to connect. We can relate to this God because he dwells in us and wants to have a relationship with us. And this means that we can never be forsaken. If your faith is in Jesus, you can never be forsaken. Hear that. You can never be forsaken. You may feel forsaken, and many of us do. Look, when I'm dealing with guilt from my sin, I basically want to hide from God, and I don't want to be near any of God's people because they make me feel guilty. And in a sense, I push myself away from God because of my sin, but God says, your sin was put on Jesus. Come near and receive forgiveness. Every single time I sin, even though it's the same one over and over again, come near. It's already been paid for. Some of us feel forsaken because of trials and suffering that we're going through. And we ask the question, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? like David in the Psalms or like Lamentations 3, we say we feel abandoned by God. There's been times when I've been facing tragedy all around me and I've cried out to God, God, show up. Just show up. And he doesn't seem to show up. He doesn't seem to answer my prayer. Some of us deal with doubts. I don't feel like God exists. Does he really exist? How can I know? We need to go back to the gospel again and again and again and hear the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You know, when you sin, you need to hear this news. God loves you. He accepts you in Jesus Christ. Your sin is paid for in whole. 
When we feel like God is distant and abandoning us, when he's not showing up, we need to remember God is always with us. The spirit of God dwells in us and he will never depart from us eternally. Even though we go through challenges and trials that may seem like the end, there is no end for those who are in Christ. He's with us now and will be forever. God offers us a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So build that relationship by hearing these things again and again and believing that they're true. And look for God. You know what I've found is that in the process of growing in my faith, it's really a process of understanding where I can see God more and more and more. And so I look for him in the worshiping body. And that's why I show up in a church service, not out of duty, but because this is where I hear and see and sense God sometimes. That's why I go to the Bible, not because I'm supposed to read it, but because I see and hear and taste the very words of God to me. That's why I try to hang out with people who actually believe in God, because you know what? Your spirit is ministering to my spirit. Like John the Baptist leaping inside of the womb of his mother when Jesus enters inside the womb of his mother. The spirit speaks to each other, and your spirit speaks to me. You can be God to me. You, you are the hands and feet and voice of God to me, my encouragement and me to you. And even looking for God in my daily life. Bill Haley, a minister at the Falls Church, also runs a retreat center in the valley, and I try to go out there quarterly. He does some spiritual direction with me, and the last time I was out, he was saying, Johnny, think about this. Think about how prayer can actually be more than just talking to God or trying to hear from God. It's practicing the awareness of God's presence with you because the Bible says he's with you. He is with you. Be attentive to God's presence with you. What he's doing and saying all around you. So I've tried to start doing that when I'm driving in the car or walking the dog or doing the dishes or it's harder when I'm yelling at my kids or being selfish. It's, it's God seems to get pushed out, but being attentive to what God is doing and saying. It's part of that relationship that he wants us to cultivate, to connect to him. You know, if you're here today and, and that whole relationship with God thing is not your experience, if you're not really sure about this Jesus thing, start with the donkey ride. Start with the donkey ride. We didn't actually talk about it, but... At the beginning of our story, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, it says in Mark, but it's the colt, a young donkey, a young male donkey. And we get in the passage that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And when he's riding into Jerusalem, do you know what's happening? He's reenacting the coronation of Solomon, who was the king after King David. Solomon rode over to the mountain, the Mount of Olives that Jesus rode over, on a donkey, to the shouts of the people saying, Hosanna, son of David. Well, guess what the people say on this very day, the, the Palm Sunday? They say, Hosanna, son of David. Save us, you are our king. Jesus is claiming, it's a very intentional thing when he rides over. He knows what he's doing. It's symbolically powerful action. And he rides over that mountain into Jerusalem to the shouts of the people saying, save us, son of David. And he's saying, I I, Jesus, am the rightful emperor of this world. I am the rightful king of this place. I am the Messiah of God. 
who has finally arrived to save his people. And the crowds, at least at that time, get it. Well, to the extent that they think they get it. They bow down and they say, save us. You are our Lord and King. If you want to try and figure out whether you can connect to God at all, you got to start with a donkey ride and ask who or what really is your Lord and Savior. Something is. You're counting on something to give you meaning and purpose. The gospel tells us that apart from Jesus, even going to church or being really, really good can't connect us to God. It's a leafy tree without fruit. It may look good to everyone else. It may even feel spiritual to you, but there's no life in it. There's no God in it. There's no eternity in it. But if we are willing to bow our hearts, to lay down our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our true king, the promise of the Bible is God will be with us. He will never leave us. You know what? That's all we're all looking for, to connect to God now and forever. Let's pray. God, Supposedly, we are hardwired biologically to connect to you, but it seems so hard at times. Our sin and guilt, the suffering and trials of our lives, the doubts and challenges of our intellect, our own self and self-worship, so many things get in the way. Help us to see in your son, Jesus Christ, the true God present for us the one who died to give us access to you. And give us the grace to walk in the love and mercy that you offer us. In Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's sing a couple verses of Before the Throne again together. Before the throne of God above a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and bleeds for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me this depart. No tongue can bid me this depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. Who made an end to all my sin? Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me.
My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God.